If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From Greece's Gaia to the Hindu Prithvi, many cultures have seen the Earth as a divine being. Christianity and Western culture, however, removed God from nature, deriding such outlooks as pagan. The Earth was recast as a resource for humans to be conquered, settled on and tamed. Now it seems the tides may be changing again. Rivers and rainforests are being given legal rights and some philosophers go further, arguing that the planets and the solar system should do too. Nature, it would seem, is the new god. So might re-embracing Mother Nature be just what we need to prevent environmental catastrophe and self-annihilation? Or is this return to the gods of nature a dangerous step that undermines human goals and values and threatens a return to superstition and fate? This debate was recorded live at our festival, How They Like It's In. If you would like to book a place at the upcoming London edition in September, just use the code RTIMES for 20% off your tickets. For more information, follow the link in the show notes. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, philosopher Hilary Lawson. Welcome to this debate, The Oldest Gods. We've got a great panel to debate this key issue that we currently face. Peter Shostid Hughes is a revolutionary philosopher of mind who specializes in the thought of Whitehead, Nietzsche, and Spinoza. And he's the author of Numenautics and recently delivered a TED Talk on psychedelics and consciousness. Melanie Challenger is an award-winning British writer, researcher, and broadcaster and works on natural environmental history to discover how humans relate to the living world. Her most recent book is How to Be Animal. And Tim Palmer is an internationally renowned meteorologist and professor at Oxford. He works on the tough, crucial problems of uncertainty in our weather and climate and was recently appointed as CBE for Services to Science. So I'm going to give each of our panelists in the usual way just three minutes to put forward their pitch in response to this key question of whether we should be returning to the gods of nature. And I'm going to start off with Peter. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. So my view is that we do not yet take nature to be God, though we could and perhaps should. So I'm going to promote the view that nature is God. In other words, 
the view of Spinoza, the philosopher Baruch or Benedictus Spinoza. Spinoza's philosophy, I think today we live in a, in a post-Cartesian, post-Christian world, and I take that partly from Nietzsche. I believe that a lot of the, the ecological problem, crisis that we have, and the hard, so-called hard problem of consciousness, how we basically explain the relationship between the mind and matter, stem from the same root. And that root is the bifurcation of nature, as Alfred North Whitehead said. Whitehead places the blame, as always, with Descartes. So Descartes, if you don't know, of course, split mind and matter. He was a mathematician, geometrician, and he said that mind was souls, com a completely different substance from matter, and matter was, for him, purely extension or space. And it seems that what has happened is, in our culture, we've endorsed Cartesianism, Descartes' thought here. We've left the soul to religion, we've left matter firstly as extension to science. And then what happened is, of course, a lot of scientists have then thought, well, we don't need religion, we don't need the soul, let's just work on pure matter as extension. The problem with that, of course, is that we end up with this cul-de-sac, which is the, has a number of names, the explanatory gap, the hard problem of consciousness, and so on and so forth. Basically, the mind-matter mystery. How do you get mind from meat, essentially, regardless of the complexity of that matter, that meat? And looking at nature as completely geometric or purely physical makes us think that it has no intrinsic worth at all. It only has instrumental value for us humans, or at least those beings with some kind of sentience. Now, Spinoza, he had, as it were, an antidote to Cartesianism, namely a monism, that mind and matter are one. Not only mind and matter are one, but that the universe as a whole is one, with all its attributes, and he calls, Spinoza called that substance, that one substance, as opposed to Descartes' two substances, called it God. God has the attribute of extension, that also has the attribute of thought or mind. And so uh, there's a dual aspect theory where um, what we see as matter essentially has an intrinsic element of mind in it. And of course, this has the repercussion that all of matter has intrinsic value. All of matter is a, has a striving, canatus, as Spinoza says. This is related to what we call panpsychism, or parallelism for Spinoza, at least. And on the larger scale, finally, the whole cosmos is sacred because it is God itself. God is not transcendent outside of nature, but is nature itself, although we have to change our definition of nature. So, yes, nature is God. Thank you for that rapid end there, Peter. Uh, uh, Melanie. <laughs> So I'm going to take the moderate, probably, view here, a little bit in between our two panellists. So I'm going to be looking at really why, psychologically, this, what I'm calling the animistic turn, has come about. So firstly, nature is a very contested term. So what do we take nature to mean? Well, it, it could mean sort of anything on the earth that is not made by us, so rivers, streams, forests, or we could take it to be slightly more specifically all living things that are not us, so forests, fungi, fruit, bats. But nature broadly is, is very confused as a concept across the world, so I like to talk about who nature is rather than what nature is, for starters, but parking that for a minute, we then have the idea of God, so God is some sort of entity, intelligent entity that has a stake in our lives. So if we take those two things to be true, then it certainly is true that 
there is this animistic turn, this tendency now, particularly in modern civilizations, to resolve what we see as this sort of crisis, this environmental crisis, to push for a paradigm shift in our relationship to the rest of nature by partly looking back at, so we can see this sort of animistic turning, partly looking back to indigenous worldviews, to that old kind of animism and a way of relating to the rest of nature. We can see it in the emerging scientific and philosophical interest in plant science sentience, in kind of atypical intelligent systems, mycelial networks and so forth. We can see it in the emergence of what Graham Harvey calls the new animism, so this sort of disparate cropping up ways that, that people are, are trying to have a spiritual connection with nature. I think a lot of this is a response to the crisis that we face, the environmental biodiversity crisis, climate change, to the fact that we see ourselves as a disruptive agent. There is probably a role in for new, in, new animism, for the animistic term, when we understand it as part of how we as an organism inspire ourselves to, and our moral agency, to act in better ways with regard to the rest of the living world. That's the job that we're wanting it to do for us. The problem for me is if you start to falsify some of the realities of the world or if, or if you turn away from science in any kind of way. My own feeling is if we're focusing on our moral agency, then science and spiritualism probably have a role in giving us good reasons to act in better ways with regard to the rest of the living world. So mine is a kind of middle, middle view on the two. Thank you, Melanie. And Tim. Well, thank you. I mean, we've been asked to sort of be slightly controversial. So let me, <laughs> let me, let me say that if we do not include ourselves in nature, then I think we're actually ducking the big problems, particularly of the environmental crisis that we're in today of biodiversity and climate change. Let me give you a very specific example. I mean, we're all, I'm sure, horrified when we watch David Attenborough programs seeing the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. And of course, quite rightly, because it obviously is associated with major loss of biodiversity. But also, the Amazon rainforest is a big sink of carbon. So it modulates our own climate here, here in London. So you know, we need, we need the Amazon rainforest for our own climate to be hopefully reasonably equable. But what is not d discussed very much in these programs is why are farmers cutting down the rainforests? You know, if you talk to a Brazilian farmer, there was, I'm sure there is nothing more he would like to do than come to this meeting in, in, on Hampstead Heath and discuss, you know, the finer points of uh, the, the god Gaia and so on. But really what he's concerned about is making enough money so that he can feed himself and his family and his children. And he would look with utter disdain on us discussing these things when we have cut our own forests down hundreds of years ago. He would say, what complete hypocrisy. So my view is that these, this is the challenging question that we need to address. And, and it really means including ourselves, humanity, as part of nature. And how do we collaborate and cooperate with one another? I'll perhaps speak more about this later. So I'm happy to support the, 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 the debate, if you like, but only insofar as we include ourselves, us humans, as part of nature. And the biggest problem, I think, is how, how we interact with one another around the world. Thank you, Tim. So what we are here trying to address is the big picture of 
how we think about ourselves and nature and whether we should think of nature as being the new god or not, or whether we are humanists at heart and we put humans first. So, Tim, I wasn't quite clear from, from your description there. You're obviously wanting to make sure that humans are central, but what is, what, how do you see nature? Is nature a resource for us? Is it something that is over and above humans? What's the relationship between humans and nature? Well, we are part, my view is we are part of nature. You know, as Jim Lovelock wrote in his book, The Gaia Hypothesis, we have an active, and we, we have for many centuries, had an active influence on, on the climate system. But we are essentially part of nature. And nature isn't just the Earth, it's the sun, it's the planets. You know, we get all our energy from, from the sun. We ourselves are made of atoms that were formed in, you know, supernova explosions in distant stars. So, you know, if we want to think of ourselves, we have to think of it as part of nature, and nature really is the galaxy, the universe. And from that point of view, you know, nature doesn't really give a jot whether we exist or not. You know, if we, if we blow ourselves up or fry ourselves up in 100 years, na nature, as the integral of the universe, won't give a damn. So, you know, it's, us to, it's, us, it's for us to find the solutions to the problems that we have at the moment. But yeah, I'm, I'm very much for us being part of, not some ex something external to nature, part of nature. And it's, and it's us to solve the problems that we have. And do you think there's anything special about humans? I mean, are we in any way exceptional? Should we consider our interests above the interests of nature as a whole? I mean, that's a, an interesting philosophical question. I mean, I remember going to a question once, would it matter, you know, should we make our, if, if, if making our species extinct meant that the, the, the rest of the planet could survive, would that be, you know, should we do that? I don't know, I think we are special, you know. I, I don't see any other forms of nature producing the works of Shakespeare or the symphonies of Beethoven and so on. So I think we do have to think of ourselves as special. We have remarkable creative talents that don't exist in the rest of the natural system that we experience. So I think for that reason that, that we should actually view ourselves as special and, and hopefully continue to promulgate ourselves as a species, yes. Thank you. Peter, we should think of ourselves as special. I mean, from our own points of view, of course, we, one would assume one would feel oneself special, just like each individual probably cares about themselves and their family more than others, you know, if it came to life and death. I suppose we are special in the sense that we are complex organisms compared to many others, but essentially I just see that as a difference in uh, degree rather than in kind. And for another organism or another life form, another species, of course, they wouldn't really appreciate Shakespeare's sonnets or whatever it may be. They would prefer their pond or whatever it might be, right? <laughs> and so the question is, how do you, how do you um, weigh up those two preferences? Can you weigh them up? And then you get into moral theory. I won't go there now. Um, I don't think you can, essentially. But sorry to agree with you, Tim, I think. But <laughs> what you said about people being part of nature, I mean, this is precisely Spinoza's reaction to Descartes. Because Descartes, following the Christian tradition, saw mankind as very special, not merely because of mankind's intelligence, but because they had a soul, a soul that was transcendent. They could go to heaven or hell, in my case, perhaps, or, or wherever. And Spinoza's, the reason Einstein said Spinoza was the greatest philosopher of modern times is because he was the first to bring mind and matter together. In other words, he made mankind part of nature philosophically. And that's why he was suppressed. He was excommunicated by his fellow 
Jews in Amsterdam, and then his books were banned for 100 years by the church. It wasn't until the 1780s with the pantheism controversy that his ideas uh, became serious again. But then science had moved on, as I said, with the Cartesian framework. And so we are at this kind of ambiguous cultural level where we think that um, yeah, we, are, we are sort of special, but, but part of nature at the same time. It's, it's a hard balance. So where, where do you stand on this? Obviously, the Enlightenment tradition has tended to put humans as special in a key way, which is that we can understand the nature of the world. We, 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 can, we can find out how it is in some fundamental way and see what's really going on. Are you, are you behind that metaphysical picture of what, what's going on? I, can we understand it? I mean, I'm quite skeptical about uh, the extent of our knowledge, really. Of, of course, our knowledge seem, seemingly develops, or at least techno technological level. Can we ever fully sufficiently understand the universe? I don't think so. I think we can have, um, you know, sort of, we can speculate, for example, with Spinozism. So, no, I, and also, I, I, I must say, I do prefer the Romantic tradition over the Enlightenment tradition. I mean, the Enlightenment, of course, following the Greeks, valuing Logos above all, above all else, it led in part to industrialism, industrialization, and from a Marxist point of view, to the exploitation of workers and factories, moving people from the land into the cities, and thus, through industrialization, has led to the ecological crisis, and in more abstract terms, as I said, the hard problem of consciousness. And is that shift from, as it were, a human god to a god of nature relevant to this? overall perception of ourselves. I think so. Hans Jonas, who was Heidegger's student, wrote this really good uh, essay in the 70s called Technology and Responsibility. And he said that all ethical theories until now, hitherto, have been anthropocentric. If you think about utilitarianism or deontology, or even virtue ethics and so on, they've all concerned mankind. Nature was always taken as a given, that it was not vulnerable. Hans Jonas points out that actually nature is vulnerable, as we are now discovering. This was 50 years ago. And so he says we need to return. In order to change this, we can't simply look at technological fixes, because in a way, the scientific technological viewpoint led to this crisis in the first place. Rather, we need to think of nature in, a, in, a, in terms of sacredness in a, in, a, in a secular world, in a post-religious world, which is no easy task, of course. So I think one way of looking at uh, nature as sacred whilst remaining pro-science, not necessarily pro-enlightenment, is through deep ecology. Arne who founded deep, deep Ecology, he said the basis of deep ecology, in other words, revaluing our relationship to the universe is primarily through Spinoza. Also Whitehead and Heidegger, he mentions, also perhaps forms of Eastern religion. But I think that we need now not to look at technological fixes, but rather metaphysical re-approaches to nature to fully get out of this predicament. Okay, thank you. Melanie, so how, where do you place yourself on this issue of the exceptionalism of humans and whether we see how we should understand that relationship between ourselves and nature and how important we are versus nature? Sure. Well, as I said right from the outset, let, we, we've already in this debate talked about nature in quite different ways. So when we're talking about trying to make sense of what's exceptional exceptional about us, we're normally talking about human nature. So human nature, we're using nature then in the sense of an essence of what we are. That essence has taken many forms throughout history. It's been the soul. It's been our consciousness. It's been our rationality, our free will. It's some sort of special something 
And it does something in the world. It gives us our moral status. It says, you can't do a certain thing to me because I have my human nature, my dignity, another kind of nature. Or it says, you know, this, this has been given to me by a god or by the gods, and therefore this is what makes my life have its meaning. So we use nature in that sense, and that work that that concept is doing is to give us our meaning in our lives and give, give us our status and what, what we can and can't do. Of course, we use that, and there, there are separate questions to be had that are in this debate about whether we agree that there is something exceptional, there is a real thing. But if we then go back to the farmer question, which is absolutely agree with that if you were to go and look at what's happening in the Amazon, you've got nature in the broad concept of kind of everything else out there that we're damaging with lots of different worldviews that, that, you know, generally you would find natives, sort of indigenous Amazonas peoples who would probably have forms of animism where Trees and jaguars have this spiritual essence. It can flow from the jaguar into the person. It moves around, and it all has meaning and value. They might be hunting the jaguar, so probably it has to do a different kind of work as a worldview because it has to sort of sacralize the rest of nature in order to sort of make sense of and justify the kinds of things that those peoples are doing in that environment. But then you've got the guys with the bulldozers coming in from Bolsonaro's government, let's say, who are saying, well, hang on, we are exceptional. What matters is our individual rights to extract, to make money, to live. We're a progressive animal. And it's a totally different kind of nature again. And I think the thing with with paying attention to what we're talking about when we talk about nature is that we make sure all the time that we give ourselves the best resources to be thinking critically and to make sense of what we're trying to do with these ideas. Are we trying to make ourselves nicer? Well, then that affiliative stuff, which is the kind of more the sort of panpsychist stuff, that's what it's doing for us. It's trying to make us care. It's trying to switch our biology on to make us have affiliative kinds of feelings. And it does make a difference. It does change our bodies. And it does make us interact with a resource in a different way. But we also use our nature and the idea of our nature to justify extraction, for instance, in the environment. So I think it's very, very muddled territory. And I think what we need is to stop and think critically all the time about what we're really talking about and we, what we want our own thinking to do. What kind of organism do we want to be in the world? Thank you. So our relationship to nature is uh, undergoing some significant change. And the question is just how we think about that change and how we think about ourselves in relationship to nature. So I'd like to just move on from that background question to the specifics of some of the situations that we find ourselves in. So should we see this move towards seeing nature as a god as potentially a dangerous step that undermines human values? Tim. Well, I think there is a potential danger, and, and I perhaps would even sort of draw on two things that were said just now. You, you were talking about the Amazon and how the bulldozers came in and sort of destroyed the system, and already that puts a picture in your mind of this sort of man-made technology destroying the natural system. And I think Peter also said, you know, we're not going to solve our problems by technological fixes. 
And I certainly agree we're not going to solve them by technological fixes alone. But science and technology, I mean, the danger with, you know, Peter, you were talking about how Einstein was uh, rejected by his Jewish religious people and, and, of course, Galileo and so on. So there, there's always this tension between religion and theology and science and technology. It doesn't have to be in tension, but historically it's always been. I think we cannot ignore science and technology in facing the current, particularly environmental problems. Let me just give you, let me, I mean, it's terribly practical, but let me give you an example, because there's a colleague of mine, Peter Edwards at the University of Oxford. Um, he's working on an ability to take waste plastic, bombard it with microwave energy, and basically rip the, the chemical bonds apart and create hydrogen and sort of pure carbon. Okay, so now what could you do with this? Well, hydrogen, I'm sure people are aware, is a, is a potential energy vector, energy source, if you like, for replacing gas and oil and, and, and petrol and so on. So one proposal that we've made is that you could actually make steel. You all, I think, you know, you'll, you've heard in the news about the, the coking coal plant in, in, the, in the Lake District, which is there to make coal, make, uh, sorry, make steel coking coal to make steel. Well, okay, we can do this with waste plastic if we use this technology. We have the hydrogen to heat the iron ore. We then add the carbon from the plastic into the iron ore to make steel. So suddenly we've got a green way of making steel. This is technology solving one of, you know, steel is what we need to make buildings. There are many examples of this. So we, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't automatically tar science and technology as bad and the sort of, you know, the natural world, the god of, of the earth or something is, is inherently good. There's got to be a synergy here moving forward, and it's clearly something which takes advantage of our special status as a, a highly creative species to do that. So that, that, you know, so I'm not against what you're saying, but I think there is a, a sort of a danger that elevating nature to this theological status, there is a danger that people will automatically then reject science and technology as a solution for our problems, and I think that would be a mistake. Okay, I'll just come to Peter in a moment. Melanie, I mean, in Bangladesh, the Supreme Court gave rights to all rivers, and one of the consequences of that were that farmers and fishers were immediately asked to move from where they were, and they lost their livelihood. So, do you think there's a danger in putting nature up as having rights independently of us? Or do you think that is the right move and it was a right thing for those farmers and fishers to have to move? I think, you know, it's imperfect. You know, that is the nature of the world that we have, that has been gifted us, if you like, by the chaos of, of of physics or whatever you want to, or a god, however you want to view it, we've inherited something as people. And nature is absolutely a mixed bag in terms of outcomes. Because we're living in a pandemic, well, viruses are a key part of nature. My child was asking me the other day, you know, where do viruses live? And I, we were right by the sea because I live by the sea. And I said, well, they're mostly in there. There are 
millions and millions and millions of them in there. And they've partly given us perhaps had a role in multicellularity. So this thing that is seen as horrible and frightening that we need to eliminate is a key part of nature. And it sometimes does things that are unpleasant, including to us. So nothing's a given in nature. But I think to go back to the concrete again about being in, in and no wonder, given that, that we have sought belief systems that help us through the moral and psychological stresses that follow from that kind of chaotic nature. Nonetheless, the reality is we have to get down to some pragmatics. When you are in the situation where, and, and very often at the moment, what we're seeing is sticking plasters going over all of these things. So, in rights of nature's cases, so what we might call wild law, we're seeing that coming out of indigenous rights movements quite often. People who were historically disenfranchised from the land, who have had no political voice whatsoever, who've often had, you know, been subject to land grabs, who are just getting by at the edges of, of any given state or nation, who are starting to come back and say, well, what you're describing in the world isn't our worldview. That's not how we situate ourselves with our resources. It's not how we manage our resources. And we want a political voice. And you know, you can completely understand, no matter what you might think about it philosophically, you can see historically how that's come about. And it's solving that kind of historical mess. But then you've got the situation with the bulldozers. And I absolutely hear you. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm a total science consumer of science, you know, and I think science has a lot to do in giving us very good reasons to act, and it will have a lot to do in resolving problems. I mean, creating things, if you look at industrial history, can go any which way. You can end up with CFCs that you never saw coming in a big hole in the ozone. You can also fix the problem thereafter, or use science to understand the problem and, and track its uh, its amelioration over time, which is you know, what's happening in the Antarctic. So we need all of the tools available, but we always have to understand that the reason we're doing something is based on our value framework. And it's those value frameworks, I think, that we really need to make sense of. Okay, thank you. So Peter, what do you say to those people who say this, uh, this move to seeing nature is God is, is dangerous? It's a threat to human agency. It's a threat to our values. What do you say to that? Well, maybe it is a threat. I mean, maybe an ecocentric point of view is a threat to humanity because it puts, if we really are to put humanity on a par with nature, then we have got no right to think of ourselves as special. This is dangerous to human beings, but one could say helpful to nature as a whole. There is certainly a conflict, I would not doubt it. For example, population control. Yeah. So you'd say, yeah, it's dangerous to human beings, but it's the right thing to do. Well, no, I'd say it depends on, it really comes down to theory of morality, does it not? So do you value an anthropocentric morality, essentially, where values are placed on top as of the most value, or do you take an ecocentric morality? Now, of course, people can take their personal perspectives on this. But is there any theoretical way in which to distinguish? But you're, but, but as I understand it, you think that we should be seeing nature. Uh, I, I, think, I think we have, following our Christian legacy in the West, 
and the, you know, right from the Judeo-Christian legacy, seeing the universe created for man, you know, in Genesis and so on, as having dominion over the earth. There has always been intrinsically, subconsciously, this valuation of humanity above nature. Nature is made for us. Okay, we're stewards of it as well, but essentially we are on top. And this undercurrent has flown through many moralities until Hans Jonas, like I said, says we need to think about more ecocentric values. How do, you, how do you ground values? How do you make this balance? This is an interesting question. I mean, for Spinoza, I'm not saying I agree with Spinoza here, but essentially, ultimately, might is right. So what people value is what's good for them. And if they can control a place, then they will do that, and the values will reflect that. The question really is, are, do there exist transcendent values, an ideal good towards which we could understand whether anthropocentrism as opposed to ecocentrism is, is right or wrong? Now, Spinoza, of course, was not a transcendentalist. God was nature. There was nothing outside of nature. So ultimately, I would say that if you, my argument would be, if you want to value humanity above anything else in nature, you have to make a very good argument for there being some form of transcendent valuation. And where do you stand on that, though? I think there is no transcendent valuation. Okay. Therefore, there is no answer. There's no, there's no fact of the matter as to whether anthropocentric as opposed to ecocentric values are better or worse. This is like tea or coffee. There's, there's no fact of the matter what's better. Uh, I would say, though, as a human myself, obviously, I have a subjective preference <laughs> for um, you know, saving my fellow uh, humans. Um, but I see that as subjective. Ultimately, there's no, there's no fact of the matter. Okay. So, yeah. Tim. Well, could I, I mean, it seems to me it's a slightly false dichotomy, this anthropo versus ecocentric, because what we understand now is that the biosphere provides services for us to exist. You know, if, if, even if we view ourselves as, as of primary, you know, uh, uh, su you know superlative importance, we cannot actually do without, without the environment or without the biosphere. I mean, I mentioned just at the beginning, if we cut the rainforest down, we do that at our peril. The, the rainforest provides a service to us, even here in London, in keeping our climate equable. Mm. You know, so we, we cut it down at our peril. And many other things, you know, we, we, we don't, this is the trouble with, you know, free market economics. It doesn't recognize the fact that actually we're paying a price for damaging the environment, and that will come back and, and hit us. And it is already starting to do so. In future generations, it'll come, come back even more so. So I think we can be kind of anthropocentric, but at the same time recognize that our continued existence requires us to value the environment and the, and the biosphere around us. Imagine a situation, though, in which somehow the continued existence of humans was, was a threat to nature as a whole. I mean, it, it's convenient in a way, isn't it, to say, oh, well, actually, our interests do match those of nature, and therefore there isn't really a choice to be made here in terms of our overall metaphysical version of the world. But let's suppose there was a real distinction, and there are many people who would think that there might be. Which way are we going to jump? Well, this is, I mean, with respect, this is like the philosopher's question about an AI car that could hit, you know, one old man or three young children. I mean, I, I don't know. I leave that for the philosophy department. I, I, I think it's such a hypothetical question. But I think the, mo the more important question is, you know, what does maintaining the, the environment mean for us as a society? 
And I, I still think one of the most moving pictures, I, 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 I'm sort of raised to tears every time I see it, is from the Apollo mission where the spacecraft came just behind, you know, out of the dark side of the moon. And suddenly the Earth, you know, you could just see the Earth appearing as this little blue disk, you know, and you could put your thumb over it and it would disappear. So you realize all those six billion people, how fragile they are. And my view is that what it teaches us is, and it goes back to the Brazilian farmer, if we're going to survive the crisis, we have to level up. You know, use Boris Johnson's phrase, we have to level up. He's talking about leveling the north and the south up. We kind of have to level the world up, I think. This is the, this is the big issue for me, if we're to survive the, you know, the current crisis. And, and that's sort of the message. I just wish Elon Musk would fly some of the politicians around the moon and they could look at the Earth like this. And maybe they would realize the truth of that. So that, that's the message I think we have to, um, you know, take to, to bear, not so much whether it's us or the environment, but it's what it's about us rel relative to our fellow humans around the world. Okay. That's the problem. Okay, so uh, let's move on to our, our final theme, which is just to consider if we were to engage in a shift from a humanist account of the world in which we are privileged to one in which we saw nature as our God in the way that Peter has been outlining, what impact would that have? Peter. Well, two, in two main ways. And in one sense, I think if we see at least nature as God and in a monistic fashion as I've been outlining, needn't be that way, then we will devise a sort of panpsychism or parallelism where every aspect of nature then has intrinsic value rather than instrumental value for humanity alone. And I think you were talking about why this is important for us at this stage, to value nature in itself, not nature for us. That's one way in which it can help. And the second way, from the small to the large, in this sort of pantheistic sense, if we take the cosmos as a whole, to have some form of sentience, what Spinoza might call the uh, infinite intellect or cosmic consciousness or whatever you might want to call it. I, I should say, by the way, Spinoza's God is, is no Christian God. It, he specifically said, God does not love you, right? It's not a loving God, right? But nonetheless, it's some kind of um, essential mind. And I think, you know, if you're going to go that far, you have to admit that to be the case. Needn't be conscious. It's as similar to human consciousness as our human bodies is to the universe, the space of the universe itself. So very different. But nonetheless, that then bequeaths to nature a form of deity, divinity, which then lends itself to a certain respect. So in both senses, we devise a greater respect for nature, both in the sort of in intrinsic micro aspect and also on the cosmic macro aspect. I think it can be very useful in that sense. And not only useful to our whole post-Christian way of looking at things, but also, you know, as you were saying, to our, you know, for our subjective good, because if we do not respect nature more, we will continue to exploit it. Whether people, you know, Brazil is a good example in question. So we need to really alter our whole metaphysical outlook to respect nature more. And that's generally the view of deep ecology, as it's known. I think the problem, I'll take an example. So I studied the history of whaling, so the first kind of boom and bust oil industry. Now, what happened with whaling was, I mean, 
you ended up with incredible natural knowledge, actually. So it sort of came out of deep natural knowledge of the people who were actually doing the work, knowing how to exploit the seas, the weathers, and the organisms, the whales that they were extracting the oil from. And you know, so they had a very close relationship with their resources and all kinds of different ideas about it. But the reality is, with us as an organism, it's in our nature, for instance, both our, you know, whatever we take our nature to mean, but how we as a species behave in our ecosystems. And this can be as true of very small societies as it can be for very large societies. It's just that the tools of impact get bigger and, and more aggressive. But we will tend to expand to fit and we will tend to exploit. And, you know, we drove whales in the Southern Ocean to near extinction. And even though we knew we were doing it, our social, our economic systems facilitated it. And in the end, it was more capital to be gained from exploiting the resource to extinction and earning capital on it. So should we use these new spiritual ways of seeing nature as God to stop that? I understand and sympathize with why we might want to use spiritual ideas about nature to try to do that heavy lifting for us. But I'm afraid I'm going to take the pragmatic path, which is that in each case, we're going to need a different bit from the philosophical toolkit to do work. So when you're talking about a human interacting with a non-human animal, it's a different kind of way you're going to have to think about that ethical dilemma to how you might think about our relationship to a big resource or a new build in the environment. I'm afraid just a one-size-one-fit-all narrative isn't going to do that work. We're going to have to think critically and very carefully in each discrete situation. And we need a little bit from philosophy and a little bit from a lot of philosophy to understand what we're doing in those situations, and we'll need science as well. I'm going to say something which uh, probably you 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 haven't you weren't you wouldn't anticipate. But um, you know, this is the first time I've been to this festival, and I just spent actually the last hour in one of the other tents listening to that, listening to the sort of deep philosophical problems about the foundations of physics. And I actually come from a physics department in Oxford. Although I spend most of my time working on climate change, I do have quite a lot of interest in these sort of questions about foundations of physics. You know, most of physics is based on what's called methodological reductionism, which basically means the smaller the better. You know, if you can get down to atoms, that's, that's really good, you can understand stuff. You can get down to particles that make up the atoms, that's even better. If you can get down to the quarks that make up the particles, that's even better still. And, you know, now CERN want to build a big collider to get down to kind of sub-quark levels and things like that. And I personally think that physics, fundamental physics, is in a mess because of this very philosophy. If we actually embraced the kind of Spinozian philosophy that actually the fundamental laws of physics may actually be framed at the very largest levels, at the levels of the universe and the structure of the universe, we might actually make some progress on these deep questions. I could talk at length about this, but there isn't time. So, although I'm not sure I can answer your question, I mean, I think we have, we're a liberal society, so people can have different views, but I think, I think there are important questions for the advancement of fundamental science, actually, about how we view nature and the, and the world around us and the bigger universe. Is it just a consequence of all these little particles jiggling around and doing their thing? Are we emergent from that? Or actually, is there some much bigger structure that the laws of physics are based on? which I believe is the case.
So I, I have some sympathy then with, uh, even though we're supposed to be on opposite ends, yeah. I think we've ended up agreeing. Very good. We have one converse, really. <laughs> and I'd like to thank all of our speakers for a really fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.